The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So tonight, the second week, we'll have small groups about 8.30, and I'll say a little bit more about those groups at that time, but just... uh, to remind folks that when we sign up for the Buddhist studies, we sign up to participate in the small groups every other week. So don't try to sneak out. Ty is our program host, so he'll lock the door. (laughs) It's good. It's really good practice to show up in that way on on so many levels. Um, So... And then the other thing, as we're just beginning now to dig into the training or the study of mindfulness of mind, to really appreciate what a privilege it is to have the time. Because it's not easy to study something that's subtle if our life is in turmoil, as so many people's lives are. So just the fact that we can be here together, that we have such a nice place, safe place to gather, that we have this interest, and that we can follow through with our interest, is pretty amazing. In the great scheme of humanity, you know, it's relatively unusual that we have this capacity, this time to do this practice. And I say that not to, so we feel guilty, which <laughs> might be the sort of the Minnesota thing to do. I don't deserve to be here. I should probably go home. <laughs> but actually to energize us, like to take it, oh, oh, I'm inspired, because I don't know how long I'll have this kind of privilege, right? I could get sick. There are people here, like some of you know Rebecca, longtime Buddhist studies person who's dealing with her uh, illness or her challenge, medical challenge. Some of you are in tune with her. She was here last m- Monday, I believe, and but had a really hard time, sort of really wanted to be here, and then it was a little too much to kind of come in the middle of her recovery. And a lot of you know Pierre and his wife um, are dealing with uh, Felix medical crisis, their newborn child, just a few months old, who is a very serious Medical in the middle of a very serious medical crisis. He's still here, but uh, you can imagine how intense it is, how easy it is for life, the details, the responsibilities of life to sort of take hold. And there we are. We're just surviving or doing what we need to do so that we have this time. We don't know when we'll have this time to study the mind. And it's really the most relevant thing. I mean, this is so poignant. I, and I keep remembering um, Saida Utejaniya and other teachers as well. But just recently, you know, on a retreat with him, this Burmese Sayada senior teacher monk, just feeling so moved that, that the, the real barrier for people digging into their practice is not realizing 
the positive value of doing the practice. So this is one of the things we really can get in our small groups and in general sharing with our Dharma friends. Like we don't want to be Minnesota shy when we um, find real value in our practice. It's like okay to share that with other people. It's not being proud or being conceited. I mean, because one of the one of the things that's always seems to come out when people learn something about their mind, besides the sense of being surprised by what they find in terms of the nature of the mind, is also the sense that uh, like the insight happened. It wasn't so much, I mean, we might interpret it as I did that, I figured it out. But usually that's not how it's understood in the mind that I figured it out. It's more like that understanding arose. Then this became clear. Then it was clear that this is how it is. Not, I figured it out. I got it. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, intangible and subtle is the mind that flies after fancies as it likes. Wise are those who discipline their minds, train their minds, for a mind well-disciplined brings great joy. So I thought uh, uh, I'll talk a little bit more about mindfulness of the mind, but in terms of the small groups, just so the reflection can be happening as I'm talking, you know, just initially, just to take responsibility for this model, right? And then maybe this model will represent your actual experience. But initially, you're learning it as a model. There's the space of the mind, and then there's the activity. And we're training our mind to see or experience the mind in that way because we're told from the Buddha that that's skillful, like it supports insight, understanding the mind, when we practice seeing that any moment of experience, there's this unbounded space, clear space, luminous in the sense that there's knowing that space of knowing isn't itself an object being known. So there's the space of the mind and then objects that are being known in that space of the mind or space of the heart. So we're training to see it this way. And uh, so then in that training, we can learn something about the question that sort of trumps all other questions. Suffering and the end of suffering. The exp- like how it is that suffering or stress or our mind being burdened, feeling burdened, and how it is that that's released. And the Buddha's basic premise is that it's in the not understanding the mind, it's the not understanding the mind that is the primal or proximate cause 
for stress arising. Or stress doesn't arise when the mind understands the mind. So we can check that out. That's something we can directly check out. Is that true? When there's clarity about the nature of the mind, is there suffering? Or when that clarity, that understanding deepens, does suffering diminish? So let's check that out. And then in terms of the discussion tonight, uh, the small group discussions tonight, you can talk about, you know, the Buddha um, explains or describes the colorings that are stressful in terms of aversion and greediness and delusion. And delusion is the uh, fixedness of the mind. So the mind isn't in a state of humble openness, curiosity, it's fixed or attached to an idea. could be a really good idea. Like I can be, my mind can be fixed on the, the idea that, you know, it's just causes and conditions. But if it's a fixed stance, that's delusion. Because then the mind is thinking that that philosophical premise, it's all empty. It's all processed nature, causes and conditions coming and going is the truth. But that's not the truth, not the idea. The idea isn't the truth. And being fixed on an idea or concept isn't the truth. It's suffering, it's stressful. So in your small groups you might want, and then as I'm talking, you might want to just learn a little, reflect, and maybe even organize your own experiences you've had studying the mind how you have seen these three unwholesome roots of greed, anger, and delusion, and how you've seen the mind relatively or maybe uh, profoundly free of greed in the mind, aversion in the mind, fixedness or delusion in the mind. Do, does the mind, do you recognize that experience of the mind free of greed, anger, and delusion? Do you recognize, have you recognized the experience of the mind colored by greed, anger, and delusion? And it's really, uh, I don't know if you noticed it in the guided sit tonight, it's, uh, it takes some time to learn how to study the mind. It's not easy. So we want a lot of humility. It's very easy to think about the mind. And remember, our thinking about the mind can be very, very subtle. And in terms, you know, as thinking goes, it can be useful thinking about the mind. That subtle, refined, nuanced thinking based on the thoughts of people who really knew their mind directly in terms of awareness, you know, like based on the teachings of the Buddha, for example. So we can have very refined, subtle, and relatively useful thoughts, but that's not necessarily seeing the mind as the mind.
I might have mentioned uh, Shinzen Young's comment, you know, subtle is significant. So what we're interested in is something that's subtle, which means it's really useful to gain some competence at stabilizing the attention for this subtle work. And uh, in case you don't know, one of the most important ways of stabilizing, tranquilizing, calming the mind so we can do this more subtle work is getting our, what we call our external life in order, cleaning up our relationships, our relationship to our body, like how we take care of our body, what we feed it, when we put it to bed, when we get it up, how we take care or the quality of our relationships with other people, cleaning them up. If there's unfinished business with your cat, go home and take care of it, you know, with your partner, with whomever. So that when the mind gets subtle, see what happens when my mind gets subtle is if I've had any challenging uh, interactions that day, there's any unfinished business, it will immediately assert itself or um, present itself in that space. Because in a way, it's just waiting for space to re-express itself. And the only reason it hasn't is that I'm busy getting attached from, to one thing, from one thing to the next. So there's doesn't really have any space to come back into the mind. And then we sit, meditate, and we cultivate a sense of spaciousness. And then that unfinished business comes in. And it's good to process that stuff in that relatively quiet space of meditation. But then we're not really meditating. I mean, we are meditating, but we're not really doing a more refined meditation. What we're doing is more of a therapeutic meditation where we're processing the unfinished business from the day or from our life, which is good to do. There's, it's, it's really good work to do that. And you can do that in sitting. You can do that when you're talking to good friends who know how to hold that honest space or with a professional therapist or however we do it. It's really important to do that work. But doing that work, what it teaches us is like, uh, one, to do that work, and two, to live a life where you don't have to do that work, <laughs> right? <coughs> so to sort of be cleaning up the relationships as we're messing them up. So something goes off, gets off, and we recognize it. It's like I forget who said this, but it seemed like good advice, not just in terms of intimate relationships with a lover or partner, but but just with friends and jobs, but the the line was something like, you don't go to sleep with unfinished business. Like if you're aware of unfinished business. Now, it isn't always appropriate to call somebody at 11.30 at night. <laughs> hey, I want to talk over this thing that happened earlier. <laughs> but you can at that moment resolve what you're going to do or send an email or you know whatever might be appropriate where you, okay, I'll see this person at this time and I'll resolve, and maybe you write yourself a note so that you actually follow through with your resolve. You don't have the excuse of forgetting what seems so clear to you then at 11.30 at night, so that you're cleaning house. You know, you're 
taking care of unfinished business. So when you get up in the morning and do your meditation, that stuff, or in your dreams at night, it's not going to keep agitating the mind. And it's much better, you know, to process that stuff not in our dreams when we're not conscious, right? So it's just like playing itself out, but there's no very little for most of us, most of the time, reflectiveness that understands what's playing itself out. So we're, in a sense, just re-engaging the trauma of that interaction, however big or small it was, because there's no wisdom reflecting, oh, this is what's happening. This is what's being known. This is what's being felt. That's what we can do when we process this stuff. So, We're doing subtle work with mindfulness of the mind. We want to understand that Buddha taught morality not just because we don't want to harm other beings, but because to do the deeper work, becoming a wiser, more compassionate person, requires that our life is relatively stable. Our relationships are relatively harmonious. That our health, even, is relatively good. If we're overwhelmed by anything in life, as we've all, or any of us have learned when things have gotten stressful, mostly our meditation time that we have, if we have any, is just processing the relative trauma from our difficult time we're going through. You know, where we can, like, uh, when I have really busy days, a good chunk really busy and stressful days, a good chunk of my sitting time is the body disarming itself. Right, So it's like I've picked up layers of defensiveness that have triggered ancient patterns of getting tight physically and energetically in the body. And then I sit and there's more space and more um, subtlety, more refinement. And so the armoring, the tightness of the body, the tension in the body, is just more apparent to the knowing mind. And then if it's seen clearly without judgment, which is our mindfulness practice, then the letting go happens. It's like breaks our heart. Like, honey, you don't need to hold that. That's not helping. It's like a pack, backpack we don't need to be carrying. Those shoulders can be released, that jaw can be unclenched, they can release, the belly can soften, you know, whatever it is. However, that those patterns exist in our own body and mind. So it's really nice, you know, when there's more momentum and less unfinished business in our life when you sit down and then all of a sudden in a matter of a couple breaths or a couple seconds there's a relatively pure space-like quality of the heart. Like, like as if you've just returned to the place you were at the most refined moment of your last set. And there you are again. Some people notice this they, when they go on a retreat. It's like sometimes when you go on the retreat, you, get, you start the retreat, right where you left off. And it might have been five months since your last retreat. And then, boom, there you are again. 
It's like the system is waiting to pick up where it left off. And that can happen if we're sort of processing our life as we live it, not adding unfinished business. We may not be processing deep unfinished business or unfinished business, but we're at least not adding to it. And then we can do this refined work. And then, so the first step, like I mentioned, is just uh, having this sense of gratitude and a sense of privilege to be able to do this work and understanding what allows that is the relative stability in our life and so really valuing that, like not doing things, avoiding, if we can, things that unnecessarily complicate or create unfinished business in our lives. So we're even more careful about our interactions now, I know that sounds tight, so, so I've been training myself to say instead of more careful, more full of care. Somehow that just sounds a little bit more useful to say it that way. So when we have an interaction where we might, there might be sparks, we're just a little bit more full of care so that we, you know, and there can, you, you probably have noticed this sense of like, oh, I avoided a mess. I mean, there's real joy when we have a meeting with that could have gotten real messy, but ends up not being messy. Or we negotiate something with our partner that could have blown up, but didn't blow up. Or we go shopping and we could create problems for ourselves, buying things that we're going to end up eating, but we don't. Or buying things that we can't afford, but we don't. Like noticing and appreciating that as a kind of joy that we're being skillful because we're full of care, because we really appreciate stability and calm and refinement. Not to get attached to it and not to judge others who we think are more gross, less refined, less pure, but because we deeply value this work. And refinement really helps to do this work, right? Because it's subtle. So we're not saying subtle is good and gross is bad. We're saying it's much more pragmatic than that. It's subtle. So if we want to understand the mind, we have to move in that direction of refinement or subtlety so we can, we can actually observe the mind because otherwise i'm sure you've noticed this like you're somewhere where you're there's a guided meditation and the teacher she might be guiding the meditation in a really subtle way you know asking inviting you to notice really subtle aspects of the mind you know and it's just like you're reliving this argument and you're you know you're upset about the tension in your body and you're kind of looking at your watch and you know thinking about what's in the freezer. And it's like two completely different universes. The, what she's pointing to in the meditation instructions and the actual reality of your experience. They're just like different frequencies completely. And that those instructions just aren't useful. I mean, they're just not in view. The mind can't look or see what the teacher might be pointing to in that moment. 
In the same way, it's possible to be in a guided meditation where the teacher's giving instructions that are, you know, not very refined. And your mind is really subtle. And if you're a skillful meditator, you stop listening to the teacher, right? The instructions. And you just follow your own practice because you don't want to notice things that are more gross when the mind is ready to do more subtle work. Because subtle is significant. It's, it, it's more impactful to notice what's subtle in the mind. There's a well-known Thai forest monk, Ajahn Dun, in the, one of the contemporaries of Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Mahabua, so one of the disciples of Ajahn Man, who really set in motion the Thai forest tradition, which was kind of a reformation movement uh, in Thailand right around the turn of the century in the early 1900s. And uh, Thai Buddhism had gotten pretty institutionalized in part to, as a counterweight to the forces of colonization that were going on in Asia. So they wanted to build this sort of really centralized culture. And so they used the Thai people's devotion to Buddhism and they institutionalized uh, Buddhism to a large degree. And, you know, whenever you institutionalize something, it kind of dies as a as a mystical practice. Um, so there was a, you know, a few back-to-the-basics monks back then in the early 1900s and just said, well, if the Buddha could do it, maybe we can do it. And they sort of headed for the hills and just did meditation instead of being more scholarly monks or doing the rituals in the temples for the lay people. And... Uh, he became quite well-known, I mean, very revered, Ajahn Man did. He died in the 50s, 1950s. But that first uh, set of disciples then all became quite established, famous, beloved in Thailand. And Ajahn Dun is one of them. And in general, they, they talk about the mind, I find, in a really useful way. And so that's what I've been using already for this course. And... Uh, just as a training mechanism to learn to, di- to distinguish, like we're training the mind to distinguish the space of the mind or the mind, and you can always substitute the word heart for mind here, right? So the space of the heart or the heart and the activity of the heart. And for me, and I, I'm presuming it's true for all of us, for me, that really lines up well. Like my mind awareness can sort of intuit the sense of space and it can definitely see the activity happening in that space. And that about sums it up. There's the space of the mind and the activity of the mind and they're very much related, completely related. They're in relationship to each other. The activity is always happening in the space, right? And the space you know, is always providing the space for the activity. They, 
They don't exist independent. We know the space because there's activity being known. So you can't separate the two things. We're just training the mind to understand this in terms of these two things. Space, open space of knowing. Like in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about the nature of mind as being luminous, meaning, well, first they say it's empty, like there's not much there, except there is knowing, right? So they use, often it's translated as luminous. So the mind is luminous. This is also related to a text in the Pali Canon in the um, early teachings of the Buddha. So the mind is empty. It's really nothing there except it's luminous. That's the second quality. So empty and luminous. And then they have this third thing, which really talks about the activity of the nature of the mind, uncorrupted by greed, anger, delusion. They, they say unstoppable, compassionate action. Right. So a mind free of greed, anger, and delusion, it's empty. There's really nothing there. It's like space but it's luminous, there's knowing. And then when it's that simple, just the knowing, then the, without the greed, anger, delusion, then the activity of that life is described as unstoppable, compassionate action. Or you could say effortless, where it's happening on its own. So that's their, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, that's their definition of the nature of the mind the underlying nature of the mind when the greed, <coughs> the habits of greed, anger, and delusion have been abandoned. So that's really our task, right? our basic training ground. We've, we've got this form or this model, space and the activity in the space. The space that has only one attribute, which is it's luminous. There's knowing happening. Don't don't make it special. It's just the way it is, right? There is knowing happening in our mind. And if you look honestly at your knowing mind, you'll see there's not like an on-off switch that you're turning on and off. There's just knowing happening. And the knowing is knowing the different objects. that, And those objects have the nature to come and go. Even things that appear initially to be the mind itself, like I'm depressed, or I'm really happy. But those things come and go. They're just not so easy. They might have a little bit of uh, you know, stability for a while. But it's really important to know, you know what, I was depressed this morning, but it's gone. So it also was something that arose and ceased. Or I was really light and happy, and now I'm not. It arose, and then it ceased. Interesting, right? So that wasn't the mind. That happiness wasn't the mind. It was an activity in the mind. That depression wasn't the mind because the mind is empty except there's knowing. But knowing itself isn't known. It isn't a something, but it, it's not quite right to say it's empty. right? So that's why it's always like it's empty of objects, but there's luminosity, there's knowing. And what does it know? Things that come and go, which is normally what we call the world or reality, the things that come and go. 
but we don't necessarily recognize that they're coming and going. That's because we haven't paid attention. We haven't gotten interested in the more subtle nature of the mind. So what we're doing is we're learning, you know, being inspired that the mind is relevant. As a human being who cares about our kids or cares about my career or cares about racial injustice or cares about saving enough for retirement or cares enough about, you know, whatever motivates you in life, you'll see that better understanding the mind better is relevant for whatever you care about. Understanding the mind is really relevant. And it's subtle, so we need to kind of cultivate the ground to do the subtle work. Like one thing that helps is to study, like we're studying, and to do it in community really helps because if this many people are interested in the mind, maybe it's actually relevant, you know, the heart or the mind, the study of the heart and mind. Maybe it's actually, as human beings with this thing we call a mind, Maybe we should actually give it some time, if we can, if we have the privilege of having enough stability in our life, enough space in our life to do this kind of study. And then we need to keep it in view. That's the last step, and I'll end here. It's like, so how, given that we're doing this 11-week class together, how can we keep it in view when we're formally sitting for that 45 minutes or whatever it is for you, And how can we keep it in view more and more through the day? What little tricks or, you know, resolves are we going to use to keep remembering that the nature of the mind is relevant, is a relevant field of study? And it's always here, so it's always relevant to study it. We don't have to, like, put down the study. How's the mind? What's the mind doing? Right? These kind of questions. Is there greed in the mind? I mean, even that question alone, to just let that land. Is there aversion in the mind? Is there delusion in the mind? You know, like a, is the mind fixed, not open and learning? So just any kind of prompt that reignites the natural interest that you already have, the mind already has about the nature of the mind. So we're taking awareness, attention, and we're learning to observe the mind. And the thing is, by being interested in the mind, initially it might feel like you're disconnecting from your life, but actually it will bring you more and more into your life because life is being known in the mind. Like I was, it didn't turn out that way, but I was thinking in the guided meditation tonight that we do breath. I thought, oh, people will be confused because they think, well, this is body. The breath is the body and this is the class on mindfulness of the mind. But the breath is being known by the mind, right? So breathing in is being known. By what? Well, by the mind. So if we're really intimate with the breath, we'll be intimate with the mind that's knowing the breath because the mind that's knowing the breath is right there knowing the breath. So if there's awareness there, we're knowing both the breath as sensation and the mind that's knowing it. Like, is it impatient or not? Is it greedy or not? Aversive or not? Fixed, diluted or not? And that's really what you can start to share. Like, what 
including your confusion, you know, what have you learned about the mind and its colorings? When have you had windows into the mind, the nature of the mind, the luminous nature of the mind, the colored nature of the mind, like colored by one of the wholesome or unwholesome roots, greed, anger, and delusion, or the unwholesome, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, the wholesome roots. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.